This is Money Talks brought to you by Solera Club. Coming up, my first ever audio shocking stat. Plus, I've got a great goofy award for you. But it's time now for this week's quote of the week. This is one of my favorite all-time quotes. It probably offends some people, but I just think it is so accurate. Thomas Sowell is an economist, and he regularly puts things in a way that I say, gosh, I wish I could put it that way. I wish I was that erudite, that clever. Well, this is one of those quotes. It gets to the heart of the societal divide that I alluded to in the opening comment, and it's serious. This is the caliber of thinking that has led Ontario's Uh, led to Ontario's outrageous financial mistakes, especially in their green energy policies. It underlines the European welfare state's dramatic and abysmal failures. It guarantees ineffective policies at every level of government. So here it is, in quotes. The problem isn't that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. End of quote. One more time. The problem isn't that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. My gosh, I could read you 30 emails from the last two weeks that would certainly illustrate that. What you feel is one thing. That's called an emotion. It's not an intellectual thought. And I'm telling you, people constantly confuse the two. Love that quote. Time now to bring on Tyler Bullhorn, StockTours.com, author of The Mindless Investor. Great time to bring Tyler on. Thanks for taking the time, Tyler. Hey, great to be with you. I love that quote. It uh, really applies to what we'll talk about today. Well, the other thing is this. is like I get asked all the time, and, and, and I'm sure you've encountered this a zillion times. You look at a stock... And it goes down in price. And we've got lots of examples of those. I mean, uh, one of the best calls I've made is telling people, as much as I like 3D printing as an industry, to get out of 3D printing stocks in November of 2013. Pretty good idea. Uh, you know, we've got so many examples, like BlackBerry falling from, whatever, 120 to 3 bucks, that back to 9 or something. You know, Nortel. In any one of these really prominent examples, you'll get people coming to you and saying, I bought it. And you go, why? Because it's cheap. You know, it's yeah, not you- a sweater. It's not a car on sale. It's not something like that. That's not how it works. So that's why I loved your stuff in The Mindless Investor, talking about contrarian investing. Uh, you know, so how do we know when a stock just dropped for darn good reason, or maybe it is a buy? So there's two, there's two opportunities as a contrarian investor. One is to take advantage of emotion, and two is to take advantage of new fundamentals that the market doesn't really know about. Now, in the case of something like uh, the collapse of the 3D printing stock, so back in late 2013 into 2014, the trend for those stocks had gone parabolic to the upside. What I mean by that is if you were to look at the chart and draw a line across the bottom, that line would curve upward. It wouldn't be a straight line. It would be curving to the upside. And that's really a sign that investors are all buying it because they have a fear of missing out. And that is a great opportunity for a contrarian to short that market or to sell that market because people are buying on their feelings as opposed to buying on buying on the facts, going back to the quote that you just had. So that's the first opportunity. The second one is when the fundamentals are changing, but the, but the uh, market hasn't figured that out yet. Um, I often say that the stock market isn't fair 
there's always some people within every stock, within every industry that simply know more than the rest of us because of their expertise or their position. And those people will lead the market. So uh, ironically, the 3D printing stocks have actually recently broken their downward trend that yep. started back in 2014. They really just did that in the last two weeks. So most people are very negative on the sector because, hey, if you bought 3D systems at $90 and it's at $10 uh, you know, last week, you're not feeling too good about it. And there's a huge amount of pessimism around it. Well, what happens then is when the story starts to get better, people ignore the story because they think, oh, those are just garbage stocks. I don't want to touch them. And they miss out on, you know, what was a very good week for the 3D printing stocks this past week. So those are the two opportunities, looking for shifts in fundamentals that the market doesn't get or simply taking advantage of the motion in the market, the fear and the greed that causes people either to pay too much or to accept too low of a price. Well, there's so many opportunities or examples of this right now because, again, I alluded to earlier in the show, I mean, this level of volatility is incredible. Uh, you know, energy stocks jump out at me at, that, at this point, or any of the commodities. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking about energy for a moment here. Uh, you know, I mean, gosh, you look at those size of the declines. I could be talking iron ore. I could be talking at really senior stocks in mining, for example. You watch them down 70 80% from their highs let alone the speculative stocks. And then you do get people going, hey, at some point this is a buy. Yeah, but is it now? How do we tell if it's now? You know, uh, how do we tell it's not? Like Nortel would have been another great example, eh, Tyler? Went from 123-ish. And I remember talking to a broker who was actually a buyer about 30. And I told him he was crazy. I said, we don't know where this thing's finishing. Well, it, it went down to four, then to 70 cents, and, of course, bankrupt after that. So we don't want to be, you know, which one is which is an important distinction. That's right. And, you know, it, it seems like it would be a hard thing to figure out, but really all you have to do is be able to draw a straight line with a ruler. Because when long-term trends are broken, it implies that there is new fundamental information that justifies people taking that higher price. However... Mm-hmm. If you look at the energy sector, so, you know, the energy sector topped out middle of 2014 and has been in a downward move ever since. So if you draw a line starting at the highs of, I think it was June or July 2014, and just cutting it across the tops, we have been below that line until this week. This is the first week that we've actually crossed through the the downward trend line. There was a point in October when it kind of touched it and it tried to break it. But it didn't do that. So if you want to talk about trying to catch a falling knife, which is, of course, what the energy sector has been, particularly in Canada, um, you want to look for a break of trend, not a little bit of strength for a week or two, because that's sometimes just short covering or people bargain hunting, kind of sucker traders. You want to wait for that break of trend. So we actually had that this week. Um, my only concern is that oil hasn't quite done it yet. So the energy stocks are leading oil which is typically how a turn happens, but I would like to see some confirmation in oil still. So I I think it's a time to maybe dip your toe in the water on the energy names. Um, I think short-term there'll be a little bit of a pullback first, but in in the weeks ahead, I think that oil is, or, or pardon me, the energy stocks are trying to turn. I would just like to see that confirmation from oil first. I, I just want to go back for a second here, you know, because uh, obviously this is difficult. We're on the radio. We're not being able to show charts or stuff like that. But everybody here has seen a stock chart. And what you're talking about is, you know, the thing was at the top the top of the left-hand side of the chart. Now it's down on the bottom of the right-hand side. And if you just draw a line, uh, you, know, through the, you know, through that movement, and all of a sudden it breaks out. It's, it forms sort of a U 
on the bottom or a V right at the bottom. And what you're saying is that's the point of which you might want to have a peak at it. That's right. So uh, typically trend reversals go in a number of stages. Step one is you hit a new low. Step two is you break the trend line, which is what energy has done now. You then have a period of sideways trading where you build a rising bottom and then you break from the rising bottom. So we're at basically step two. Um, as you go down the steps, the probability gets higher. You know, the probability of success trying to buy the bottom is very low. Yet that's what everyone tries to do because they all want to say, I bought the low. You know uh, what's probab- incredible about that? Sorry to interrupt, but it's incredible. Yeah. Is This is what I'm always telling people. They are investors, but they act like traders. The trader yeah. wants the low because he's scalping it. He might be three days in that trade or two weeks in the trade. But right. the investor says, I'm going to hold it for five years or three years or something. I'll tell you, if getting really scalping the low is important, you've made the wrong investment. You know, that shouldn't be important in the end, whether you bought oil at 26 or 28 or 32, if that indeed was the low, because you're holding it over a period of time. And I always think that's a real problem is that we are investors, but we act like traders, as you just alluded to, and we try and pick lows. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and one of the, you know, the market trading cliches that you hear all the time is one of the most expensive ways to buy the stock is to buy it at the low, because mm-hmm. so often it's not the low. You know, if you think about yeah. the extremes that we had in the energy downturn, you had an extreme move to the downside in October of 2014, another one in November of 2014. And then I can just count, I'm, I'm looking at the chart in front of me right now, over and over again, there have been these sharp downward moves where people say, hey, I bought the low, and then two weeks later, they're you know losing yeah. on their position because they tried to catch the bottom. I don't try to buy bottoms. I'm I'm happy to give up the first part of the move in order to increase my probability of success. So that's why I say as of this week, I would say the probability of success buying the energy market is around 60-65%. If you wait for the break from a rising bottom, which means you'll pay a little higher price, your probability of success probably rises to 75%. So for every trader there's a different mentality for every investor a different sense of what they want to do. Is it more important for you to get it cheap or is it more important for you to be right? And that's determines, you know, whether you try to buy these stocks now or not. Well, and it's an absolute killer. I'm, you know, I'm an old guy and I've been around for 40 years doing this. And one of the really big mistakes I see people making is they don't invest to make money. They invest to be right. And that being right part isn't the same thing at all. I'm talking with Tyler Bullhorn, The Mindless Investor. It's a terrific book, by the way. You can find him at stockscores.com. I'm going to come back. I want to go further into this. We know the market moves on fear and greed, but I want you to be able to take advantage of it. Tyler Bullhorn will share how to do that when we come back on the Chorus Radio and Money Talks Network. I'm talking with Tyler Bullhorn just before my first ever audio shocking stat i hope you stay with me for that plus i love my group goofy this week i think it should be brought to your attention but right now as i say tyler bullhorn stockscores.com author of the mindless investor uh, tyler earlier you're talking about just such a key thing is that we can take advantage of fear and greed on the markets but i want to just reiterate how you know guys like me and people listening they can take advantage of it Sure. So let's think about what's going on in the market right now. Uh, One of the questions I ask myself every day is, where is their emotion? And I think one emotional area where you've had maybe price move up too quickly is in the gold, uh, gold mining stocks, that sort of thing. They've really been the top performer in the Canadian market for the last month or two. 
And I think they've gone up just too quickly. And therefore, they are ripe for a pullback. That doesn't mean that they're going to go to new lows necessarily, but in the short term, I expect those stocks are going to see some profit taking for no other reason than people were buying them because of a fear of missing out. And the result was these trends went parabolic. You look at a stock like Kirkland Gold. I mean, a month ago, it was four and a half dollars. I think it was pushing nine dollars on Friday. So that's one idea. Then on the other side, and that would be an idea based on the emotion of the market. On the other side of the equation, you have the energy stocks, which fundamentally look terrible. I mean, there's so much discussion around how bad the fundamentals are for the energy market. And yet, these stocks were able to break their downward trend last week. One of the things when, when we talk about fundamentals is you have to ask yourself, has the market priced in the negativity already? You know, if, if the market overshoots what they price in, the stock could actually go up even though the fundamentals don't get any better. It's just that they aren't as bad as the market has already priced in. So, you know, a stock like Baytex, which I bought on, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday, up 20% this week. So longer term, looking out weeks or perhaps a couple of months, I think those stocks will do well. However, short term, they also went up too fast this week. So on the emotional side, in the last three or four days, the energy stocks went up too fast. But on the fundamental side, they're starting to show signs that they're turning around. So you got to balance those two things. And it, it's hard for me to explain it without being able to draw some lines in front of people. But hopefully you get these concepts of taking advantage of fundamental change versus emotion. And, and uh, you know, one of the things you're alluding to there, by the way, is what confuses people. I always get asked, why is this going up? You know, that's a typical media question to me. And I'm saying, yeah. well, a lot of people had made money. And they're just, uh, you know, they made money playing it to go down. And that was, I think, a large part of what we were seeing in the oil market itself. People, had, when it dropped down to 26, especially, well, the first or second time, people had made so much money so quickly that they simply bought the oil to close their position, lock in their profit. That sent oil higher. I think some of that was in the Canadian dollar, too. And we're now at, pl- at places where I'm looking personally to see, is this a more major thing than just a correction to that overall downtrend in both oil and the Canadian? That's right. One of the things you have to keep in mind, too, is that a large part of the volume that we see traded in the market every day is driven by computers trading algorithms. Mm-hmm. And, and those algorithms love to short emotion when it goes to the downside too far or buy or pardon me, goes to the upside too far, or buy emotion when fear pushes stocks too low or commodities too low. And these aren't people making the decision. It's just some, you know, mathematician who's programmed a computer to do what they see happen over and over again, mm-hmm. which is take advantage of emotion. And that is a huge part of what goes on in the market. And I think a lot of people really underestimate the role that computers have. I mean, they're looking on Twitter, these, these computer algorithms, they're looking on Twitter to see what are the stocks people are talking about a lot, knowing that that all that chatter pushes the stock up too fast and they'll just short those stocks. Not because there's anything wrong with the fundamentals, just because the emotion pushed it up too high and they're using social media to make some of those trading decisions. So where does that leave individuals? I mean, that sort of is overwhelming to think that's the odds we're up against. Well, you know, ultimately the chart doesn't lie. Um, and if you take simple rules, simple principles and apply them, then you can take advantage of these things. So you know, I've written pieces for your, your newsletter readers where we just draw lines with rulers. And if price runs away from the straight line, then it's emotional. If price is breaking one of those straight lines, then there could be fundamental change. And this approach, even though for a lot of people it says, how can you make money by drawing lines on a chart? 
once you see the empirical evidence of how well it works when it is done properly, and there's a lot of people that do it mm-hmm. very improperly, um, you can start to see that you can really take the emotion, take the uncertainty out of things, and it gives you a certain amount of comfort um, because you know that these rules work over and over and over again. Well, what I've done here is that we're going to, uh, Tyler wrote a good piece on this for the Inside Edge, our paid uh, subscription for moneytalks.net. I'm going to ask them to move it into the front page so everybody can have access to it. So you can see, because uh, he's got charts there, and this will, uh, he's, he's done a terrific job explaining this. This will reinforce it, because I would really impress upon people, this is exactly why we do Money Talks, is to help you thrive and survive in a very difficult environment here. Uh, as I say, Tyler's done a great job. The Mindless Investor is a great book. But uh, go on to moneytalks.net. We'll have it on the front page. You won't have to work for it. It'll be right there on the front page over in the next few minutes here. So you can, uh, again, it'll just reinforce what Tyler's been saying. You'll be able to see uh, the charts and the trend lines there, and it becomes very straightforward and something that you can put into place immediately. Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time. Great stuff as usual. Hey, great to be with you. Have a good weekend. Go to stock scores it's one word stockscores.com stockscores.com that's where you find more work with tyler and the work that he does as i say fascinating stuff we're moving it right to the front page as we speak here stockscores.com tyler bullhorn hey just a reminder by the way and of course i'm big on this but i think you've got an opportunity you want to the more informed you are i always say if you're not going to learn about these subjects with us where are you going to learn it we don't learn these in school you don't learn about macroeconomics. You don't learn about personal finance. Certainly the mainstream media doesn't do, in my opinion, there's some individual exceptions. But actually, my experience is they're not even interested uh, in economics and finance, mainly because they don't understand it. So it's easy just to set it aside. So where are you going to learn about this? Uh, well, that's why we do money talks. That's why I do a daily business comment to present points of view. Maybe you don't hear. I do a midweek money talks uh, interview every week uh, and all of that can be found on moneytalks.net it's absolutely free you can sign up also for free to what mike's reading and once a week we send out some stuff that i think you'll find of value it doesn't take a lot of your time but i would suggest that you do it moneytalks.net coming up as i said i've been promoting the heck out of this why because i've never done it before i'm talking about the first audio shocking stat coming your way stay with us <coughs> Hey, by the way, if you're listening from Vancouver today, immediately after the show, I'm going down to Kitts Beach for a Special Olympics event, a fundraiser for Special Olympics, where there will be a polar plunge down at Kitts Beach, and I'm one of the judges. No, I can't go in. My back is still terrible, but I will be judging the costume, so come on out if you've got uh, a few minutes on your time. Be there about 11, 11 11.15 at the latest, but 11 o'clock going to be a lot of fun. As I say, uh, I'm a big supporter of Special Olympics and people with intellectual disabilities, but it's going to be a great day. Sorry to eat your heart out, uh, my friends in Edmonton and Calgary today. It's such a gorgeous day here in Vancouver and Victoria. Time now for my shocking stat. As I say, my first audio shocking stat. I got such a kick out of the final press conference of the uh, provincial and federal uh, governments on climate change this week in Vancouver. Um, come on, we all expect a certain amount of nonsense, but this was such a beauty of saying zero. So for the first time, here it is. And my shocking stat, well, the number zero, as in it made zero sense. Listen to the Prime Minister here on this audio clip. Putting a price on carbon, carbon pricing, 
uh, is an important part of the suite of tools, of suite of tools that we will have uh, to bring forward the uh, low-carbon economy that we need. And I'm pleased today that we have uh, agreement to move forward in a way uh, that respects uh, the challenges and particularities of jurisdictions across the country on carbon pricing. Just as a follow-up, in, in terms of how flexible that would be, what would you count as carbon pricing? For example, Nova Scotia Prebury this morning was talking about their hydroelectricity counting as a carbon price. Would that be included? We have uh, established working groups uh, that will dig into these and other questions to ensure uh, that the mechanisms that we put in place are going to reach our goals of reducing carbon emissions in significant ways while increasing uh, our capacity to compete in uh, uh, a global economy that is demanding real action on climate change and real solutions. Uh, I look forward to the great discussions that our working groups are going to be bringing forward, uh, and I look forward uh, to continued collaboration right across the country uh, with premiers who have come together uh, to sign a very ambitious and responsible declaration uh, to engage uh, with this great issue of our time. At the end of this process in, in the fall, um, are you still determined to have, as you promised in the election and since then, a, a pan-Canadian minimum price on carbon? The commitment we made today uh, with the Vancouver Declaration uh, shows all First Ministers in this country uh, united on uh, carbon pricing mechanisms. Uh, as I said many times during the election campaign, one of the great strengths of this country is uh, the diversity in geography and uh, communities and perspectives uh, that allow us to uh, move forward in different ways on shared and common goals. And the fact that we, had, we have consensus on the need to include carbon pricing in our approach to addressing climate change right across the country uh, is uh, a, a great thing indeed. Now, I'm sure politicos won't like that, but come on, that was fantastic. I mean, really, talk about saying nothing with the mouth going there. The fact is there was no agreement. There's huge disagreement about what carbon pricing, et cetera, but can't come out and sort of tell the truth to the Canadian public. Uh, that's not happy talk. So I love that last comment, though. In the election, he talks about the diversification and the geography as if that had anything to do with the question. Anyways, uh, he's not the first politician. I was just exceptionally entertained and maybe even surprised a little when I heard that going, wow, that really was zero, zero content. So I'm not, I shouldn't say it's shocking, but that is my shocking stat of the week. I'm taking a break. I'll come back. I got Ozzy Jurek. I've got Victor Dare live in the trading desk, and I got a goofy I'm sure you're going to enjoy or at least hate along with me. All of that coming your way. Coming up, I'm going live to the trading desk with Victor Adair. Also, I've got a goofy award for you. Right now, joining me on the line, I've got Ozzy Jurek. Uh, Ozzy, it's interesting. There's so much talk about real estate. Maybe it's because we understand it other in, in, in this way that we've opened a door. We go in, we're in real estate. We all can associate with it. So tons of talk, but not all of it is accurate. And I want to come to one aspect of that. A lot of talk about how affordable or unaffordable Vancouver is. Yeah, and I like we're sort of surprised how expensive we are, and then, then we, we accept this at face value. And last week, for instance, a study came out, which is from Demographia, 
And as a local researcher, Ng Wang Huang, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who says it's all a myth because every single country in the United States has an affordable housing crisis from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, and Jacksonville to Juneau. No matter where you look, there isn't enough affordable housing. And the same is, is in Western Europe or in London. But we quote the Demographia survey, which only um, researched nine countries in the world, didn't involve any other country than North America with the except in, in Asia, with the exception of Hong Kong, and then claims we're the third least affordable. Yeah, and, and it, I, I think it's a really interesting point you're making. I, just anecdotally, I know someone who's moved to Portland, Oregon recently, and uh, said exactly that. I, it was funny because I thought, boy, I'm listening to a Vancouver comment here, how unaffordable it is. You know, I mean, uh, also, I always found that unbelievable when they say we're unaffordable. Well, what's your measure? But come on, compared to London, England, give me a break. Compared to Paris, yeah. you know, I mean. Well, for instance, I, I, rate, as number 89 on the, on the list, they have Hamilton, Ontario, and Singapore equal in affordability. Now, Singapore is 5.5 million people into 780 kilometers. It has great financial centers, oil refineries, great ports. And Hamilton's, uh, and the average house in, in, in Singapore is between 2 and $3 million in the suburbs. And Hamilton has 500,000 people, and the average house is 269,000. They're both equally unaffordable. It's absolute nonsense. Yeah, how do they even arrive at that kind of stuff? I mean, that's, sorry, just to digress for a sec before you answer that. Um, you know, this is a key for people. We get the headlines. We don't go further. And I don't care if we're talking about poverty or homelessness or uh, any other big subjects. We've got to do a little more thinking, a little more digging. Uh, so when someone says affordable, you really do have to ask based on what? Exactly. And that's why I like her sort of uh, putting her mind to it. I mean, when you look at the data, for instance, from the International Monetary Fund, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Tianjin, Jiangsu, Hong Kong, Vancouver didn't even make the top 15, which went, by the way, to Singapore. And then to, to, to say that Oshawa, Ontario, and Tokyo is the same affordability level, or that Saskatoon is less affordable for housing than Orlando, Florida, is all nonsense. You know, by what criteria? And so you're right. We, we accept these sort of platitudes, and we don't check the source. And so the you know the bottom line also there's one other big factor here is that there's a fascinating urbanization taking place throughout the globe that has so many not just social implications but economic ones uh, you know that there is just this literally you look at some of those studies massive urbanization that's the phenomenon moving in China is of course a wonderful example of that an easy one uh, moving from you know agricultural uh, the rural areas into the cities and that creates this problem but as you say you know you name the city it's got the problem yeah and so when you look at our numbers say yes we're very expensive there's no question about it but when you when you not include some of the most expensive cities in the world in the survey and call it a global survey then really you know what no no uh, none of the major european ones none of the major chinese ones. so we should take all of these numbers with a grain of salt yes we have a very hot housing market but we're certainly not the third least affordable what about some hot properties well, we've got a Gilbert home. It's a nice area of Phoenix, three-bedroom, two-bathroom, two-car garage, uh, new appliances, painted, large lot, nice swimming pool, 215000 And <laughs> you get a front door for that in Vancouver. Then we've got a foreclosure in Surrey, 1,550 square feet, three-bedroom, three-bath. It's, it's in the court at 216.9, and a unit sold in the same complex uh, uh, for about uh, 286000 And finally, Nanaimo, three-bedroom, single-family home, lane access, updated, 
Yeah, Nanaimo's one of my sweet spots, as you know, Ozzy. I try and stay ahead of the curve. I'll be right on that one, that's for sure. <laughs> you bet. And we had Nanaimo and New Westminster, by the way, which is also starting to, to burn higher. Uh, we, we had them as our outright recommendations for cash flow because you can still buy a property there that cash flow. But, you know, Nanaimo, North Nanaimo was talking to Scott Forbes from uh, Coast Realty, and he was telling me that even the Chinese uh, buyers are going there in that 900,000-plus area and, and, and driving up prices and sales are up almost 50%. Wow, interesting stuff. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. You can find Ozzy at juruk.com, J-U-R-O-C-K.com. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Mike, and you too. Take a break. I'll go live to the trading desk coming up. You want to be with us and you want to stay with us for a Goofy Award. All of that on the Money Talks Radio Network. way you better sit down for this one but first i'm going live to the trading desk victor adair is with me i mean my goodness i look around what's been going on chronicle a little bit by tyler bullhorn there a few minutes ago but man we've had some counter trend rallies a lot of stuff that was going down sharply for the last couple of years has shown some recovery victor i mean as i say where do we start you can start at any number of things mike but uh, one of the ones that jumps out to me and i heard tyler mention this as well the index of gold share prices, we hit a 20-year low or something like that in January. We're up about 60% in the last six weeks. We've had crude oil here's jump 38% in the last three weeks. You know, copper up about 17% in the last few weeks. We've had some big moves across the commodity space, the commodity currency space. You know, Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, both up at least 10% or so here in the last six weeks. There's been a lot of movement up in these markets after some pretty protracted down moves over the past couple of years. I mean, there's such a consistency there or a, th- a theme there. You know, the commodities all down getting killed, commodity currencies getting killed. Uh, now, the reversal, U.S. dollars weaker across the board, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But my question still becomes, uh, you know, I've got a tepid position on in gold, which I'm happy with. But, you know, this telling this between, hey, a correction to that down move is expected. Canadian dollar hit 68 or, or, or oil hits 26 and change. Of course, it's got to correct at some point. But how do we make that distinction between that correction and a, a trend reversal? A couple of things at play here. And one of the as a trader, the most important thing is about how you manage your risk. Another very important thing is you've got to keep the time frame of the trading that you do in sync with the time frame of your analysis. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've had uh, like a, a, the, this past week, I think the Australian dollar had the biggest rally that it's had in five years. Okay, if you're trading, you know, hour by hour, day by day, you know, that, that's a big move. But I, I'm a, a little longer term than that for sure. I swapped some emails with our good friend Joseph Schachter this week, and he put a really great perspective on it, particularly on crude oil. He does not think we've got a bottom here. He says bottoms occur when you have fear in the market and not greed. And I think what I've seen in these markets here, particularly with oil, there's been a lot of people just unable to control themselves. They want to get in there and buy the low on crude. And now that it's had a bit of a jump, you know, there's other guys falling all over themselves before, you know, it's too late. they got to jump in. So the positions that I'm taking on the crude oil, I have been long, and I'm thinking I'll take my positions off. Uh, the Canadian dollar, I have been short. I've lost money in the Canadian dollar this week, but not a lot because it was controlling my risk. I bought some 
puts on the Japanese yen because it's rallied 10% in the last month. And I, I'm just calling uh, BS on that. I don't think it's going to continue. And I'm also buying some out-of-the-money puts on gold. I think it's run up too far, too fast. So that's kind of my take on this bounce. Yeah, as I say, it's. I think your a couple of points are so important. I just want to reiterate what you've said there. Make sure your your uh, you, how you approach the market is is uh, you know through so your trading time frame is how you're doing your analysis. But the other one I loved you quoting uh, Joe Schachter there is this thing about uh, again looking at markets bottom in in fear not in greed. So when people aren't sitting there going, hey, I think I can take advantage of this. They're going, oh my god, I better get into a bunker. That's a bottom. <laughs> Yeah, that's what a bottom looks like, and I don't think we've had it. Now, but here is always the thing. It's it's just an opinion. I've got a view on the market here. Other people are going to have a different view depending on your time frame. One of us is going to be right. One of us is going to be wrong. I'm wrong a lot in the trades that I make. I just try to make sure if I'm wrong, I just lose a little bit of money. I get out. That way I'm not going around with my head in, uh, you know, uh, yeah. in denial. And you just got to be real about it. But I think the bounce that we've had in commodities here is either overdone or it's just a little bounce that we're going to make new lows. I do not think this is the beginning of a major move to new highs. Good stuff as always, Victor. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, Mike. Take it easy. My thanks to Victor Adair. My thanks to Ozzy Jurek. My thanks to Tyler Bullhorn. Also, Drew, Drew Zimmerman and Michael Levy. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club, which is a royalty-based investment, meaning you get paid first. It's in the tech sector, and there's no fees attached. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, one of the hallmarks of our self-described progressive elites is their utter disdain for alternative views. Ironically, there's absolutely nothing progressive about that. I can't think of a more limiting intellectual approach. Leads to some horrendous policy decisions. I mean, you wonder at times how they didn't see some sort of reaction coming. Well, simple. They don't talk to anyone who would be uh, providing a critical view. Uh, that Vancouver Transit ref, uh, referendum was a great illustration. All the power groups, business, organized labor, uh, media, uh, it, no political opposition whatsoever. They had the budget. They still got trounced. I think it's much like the Republican establishment and the media with regards to Trump, Donald Trump. They didn't see him coming. They don't know. They don't talk to the type of person who supports them. Hence, they got a problem. Brings me to another vivid example. This week's Goofy. I think right now a lot of Canadians are shocked at the size of the projected federal bus, uh, budget. But you think politicians would be sensitive to it. But no, they're not. They either don't understand or they don't care. I'll give you an example. Here's this week's Goofy. They gave themselves a 20% raise for their offices this week. Their office budget's got a 20% raise and a 5% boost to travel expenses. That means each MP is going to be able to spend an additional 57690 on top of their current budget, which is already about $290,000. In addition, like if you're the Speaker of the House or the Deputy Speaker, the Office of the Party Leader, whips, caucus chairs... I mean, they've got huge raises coming. Speaker's going to get an additional $193,000 on top of a budget that was already $1.15 million. I mean, it is absolutely incredible. Uh, the opposition leader gets an additional 725000 That's on top of the $4.3 million they already get. NDP's going to get an additional 337000 on top of the $2 million plus they already get. Of course, they'll have a justification. 
But it can't be because of inflation, by the way. The point is, yeah, and I know the conservatives have frozen those budgets uh, for about three years or four years. But here's the thing. It's so tone deaf to the public. How does it look? I mean, you give yourself a 20% raise and a 5% travel increase. I mean, there's no explanation of why, and I don't see it. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I do not see why they needed an extra, basically, 58 grand on top of their 288,000 budget already, let alone the stuff for the speaker and the size of those things. That's why they get my goofy. And yes, the liberals are back. But my gosh, talk about tone deaf in an environment where people are worried about government spending and deficits. That's all the time I have today. Thank you for listening. Tune in to moneytalks.net. Get the daily business comment. I really invite you to do it. And you can see Tyler Bullhorn's article explaining what he talked about today on contrary investing. Thanks for listening.